Amen. Beautiful anthem it is indeed. Uh, If you're able and willing, let's turn to the Word of God. That'll be the basis of our conversation in a sermon today. It's taken from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, verses 14 through 29. Let's hear the Word of God. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And Jesus asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down. And he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered, The more faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long, has it been ha- how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. This is the word of God. Thanks be to the Lord. All right, let's uh, pray one more time before we look to the word of the Lord. Gracious God in our glorious heavenly Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, as the public reading of Scripture has just ended, and as the exposition of the word is about to ensue, may your word accomplish its purpose for which it was sent to edify your people and to glorify the triune God. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, our rock, our redeemer, and it is in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning once again. Uh, It's a great delight and privilege for me to be here at Independent Prayers for this mission's uh, conference uh, culminating worship today and then later on this evening where Clark Norton will be preaching. Um, so my name is Paul Lim. If I haven't had a pleasure to meet you, um, I've been an academic missionary for the last 16 years at Vanderbilt University. So after my graduate studies in England, uh, the Lord called me to Gordon-Conwell Seminary in 2001, where it's an evangelical seminary, and I taught there and had beautiful five years where our son was born and just really enjoyed teaching there in the Boston area. But God had a different plan. God called me to uh, the South. So I was born in South Korea, grew up in Philadelphia, 
never traveled to Nashville until I came to, uh, to interview for my job at Vanderbilt University. I thought I was going to a different country, but it turned out to be much better than that, and it just really has been a great journey. And I remember telling my friends as I was leaving the, the really familiar shores of Boston and Gordon-Conwell Seminary that I was going there to a secular university as an academic missionary. Because less than 3% of all the professors in the humanities field in modern and contemporary secular universities will self-identify as a traditional Christian. That's one out of 33. So that's a pretty small number. And also for me, my work has been primarily in the area of teaching the history of Christianity in the Reformation period. So talking about how there is, you know, kind of a, a revitalization of Christianity through figures like Martin Luther and John Calvin and the Puritans and much beyond as well. So it's a great delight and I really am uh, really encouraged and humbled to be joined by my brothers and sisters who are working indefatigably in the Ukraine and also in Norway and Poland and Russia and other places in Spain and so on. So today, here is a text that is uh, read before us and I have been asked a number of times in my life as to what my favorite Bible verse is that really kind of help best explain my life journey as a Christian. And I said, these are the five words that really encapsulate that. So the, the title of today's sermon is Five Words to Live By, At Least For Me. And those five words are, as you can perhaps guess, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. It is neither just I believe and that's it. It is neither this kind of unvarnished optimism or untrammeled kind of uh, certitude, nor is it help my unbelief that captures it, this kind of inconsolable pessimism or declaration of skepticism all around. No, actually in our politically and culturally uh, polarized context, this, these five words are as bipartisan as you can find it. I believe, help my unbelief. So four points I'd like to share with you this morning from this passage are as follows. So I normally preach, you know, I've been preaching at Christ Press for the last seven years, and I usually have three points. But for this one, it's not the three as in the Trinitarian one, nor is it five as in the five points of Calvinism, but it's four and just couldn't do otherwise. But the four points are as follows. First, the challenge of Jesus. Second, confusion, even with Jesus. Three, compassion of Jesus, four, courage from communities of Jesus. Four, four words starting with all C, challenge, confusion, compassion, and courage. Let's look at the challenge of Jesus. We find that in verse 23 of our text. As we think about the cultural context of Norway, Ukraine, Poland, Albania, Greece, Spain, etc., etc., there are a lot, a great number of challenges that concern these nations and our city here in, in, in Memphis and, and also uh, much, much beyond. Various crises of wars and rumors of wars and refugee crisis or global pandemic of COVID-19 uh, and also the economic crisis that are in and around us, whether it is the interest rate or is the debt ceiling, and we can go on and on talking about that. But on a different level, in today's text, we find a challenge that is presented to this father and his son. We don't know how old he was, perhaps like a young teenage boy or something like that, maybe middle school, maybe high school, maybe 
uh, and we will, uh, I would like to invite you to think about yourself in the narrative of this text today. Here we have a boy possessed by a deaf and mute spirit. And there is a challenge that is kind of facing this boy and his father and many around as well. To live a life worth living in this between ages of already and not yet. Right? Christ has already accomplished redemption for us, yet the consummation of Christ's outworking of the restoration of cosmos is not yet finished. So we will have challenges. We will have troubles. As Jesus himself said in John 16, 33, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. He says before he moved on and before he was crucified and resurrected and ascended, he tells his disciples, in this world you will have trouble, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer and good courage because I have overcome the world. Even before he was crucified, even before he was risen again, he says, I have overcome the world, already proleptically looking forward to his victory. Here in this text, however, the boy's father brought the boy to Jesus, right? And then there is a swirl of messianic anticipation. As you have, so John, Mark chapter 9 is sort of halfway through the gospel of Mark. So the first eight chapters have presented to us this kind of, you know, the, the figure of Jesus. And he is kind of receiving lots of attention, garnering lots of public kind of scrutiny and public anticipation and enthusiasm. Maybe this might be the kind of messianic figure that we've been waiting for. Because in the Second Temple Judaism, after they return from their exile experience, there's an intensification of piety and interest in, in worshiping right worship of Yahweh. There is therefore, there is a real longing for the Messiah to come. So they were wondering whether this may be the kind of a priestly figure Maybe this might be the prophetic sage. Maybe this will be a, a sort of a kingly ruler that we are going to encounter. So when Jesus came and began to proclaim the kingdom of God and began to kind of really demonstrate the real presence of Yahweh through word and deed, it was obvious, it was natural that people be flocking themselves to him. And that is the context of today's text. And right before that story, what we have here is the account of transfiguration in Mark chapter 9. Transfiguration of Jesus is a spectacular event. If you have the time, I want, you to, I want to invite you to read that passage because it, spe it bespeaks of this resplendent glory of Jesus. You know, the, the most brilliant light that could ever be shown on a person was shining on Jesus. And there was James, John, and Peter that, were, that went with Jesus to this mountain and he was transfigured. And guess who else showed up? Do you remember? Moses showed up and Elijah showed up. And Peter was completely nonplussed. He didn't know what to say. So it says in 9.5 of Mark, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And parenthetically, Mark says he did not know what to say because they were so frightened. It is that text. So, so Jesus is away with three of his kind of favorite disciples and the nine are left to fend for themselves or kind of, you know, keep the shop as, as it were while the, the owner is away. So while Jesus was away, there was a father who brought his son with him and then they were, the, the nine were not able to do that which the father was asking of the disciples of Jesus to do. And that is the context, you see. So I want you to really think about this. There are many parents here and grandparents here. Imagine yourselves to have a child, daughter or son, that, that is in the mid-teenage years and has this kind of really thus far incurable condition. 
It is the, you know, it, that your child has the spirit that, that sometimes robs him of speech and then throws him into fire, throws him into water. And when, when that happens, you convulse and you become frigid and you gnash your teeth. And this is, this is a terrifying situation. And you hear that there's an amazing teacher, so you bring your child to him and waiting for him to do something that is truly extraordinary out of this world type of experience. Yet his kind of, you know, apprentices couldn't do anything. Thus far, we have that text. So this is the sort of challenge of Jesus. The challenge of Jesus is this. So Jesus asked the father, how long has it been like this? And the father says, well, from childhood, it has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, please have compassion on us and help us. Then here comes the challenging words of Jesus. If you can, everything is possible for one who believes. Right? So challenges issue. The, he, you know, Jesus throws down the gauntlet. And now what is the father going to say? Here are the words that are the five words to live by, right? It says, you know, pisteo berthi maute epista. That means, I believe, help my unbelief. The father says, okay, I think you are the right teacher. I think you're able to do it, so I believe. So challenge has been issued. So we say, I want to, the father says. In fact, I do believe. But you are the only one who can take care of my, my own incurable disease called unbelief. So I can only bring that to you as well. I believe that you can do it, but there is this residual presence of my doubt and skepticism and unbelief. So I bring that to you as well. I believe, help my unbelief. To me, this is one of the most sincere and transparent and transformative confession of faith. The Father, and I'm so glad it is part of our scriptures, because I don't know about you, but in my life journey, those five words have provided such immense existential comfort and encouragement. To know that this one says, I believe, if it just ended at I believe, then in my moments of, you know, kind of doubt and questions, I wouldn't know what to do. Nor did the Father say, I don't believe it at all, just I have unbelief. That, that doesn't really do much for me either. But for this Father to say, I believe, Help my unbelief means that that really describes my life journey after I became a Christian as a junior in college and having many questions about why this, why that, and why me, why Lord, why now. All of these things are, you know, in light of Jesus, in light of the presence of Jesus, that I can, as the Father said, I believe, help my unbelief means that our Lord, your Lord and my Lord, knows that we have questions, knows that sometimes we don't have all the answers. And yet the Lord says, you know what, come unto me, because all things are possible for one who believes. In, that, in the middle of that challenge, Jesus is calling us even today. A new, new people and new Memphis, I think that is, is that what it says in the cover? Yes, a new people, a new Memphis. I love it, right? So that this church is continually in the business of restoring the image of God in our life and in our faces. So a new people are being renewed and recreated. And as a result, there is a city renewal as well. So the challenge of Jesus is to say, you know what? Here am I and bring your, bring your concerns, bring your kind of, you know, issues to Jesus. Who else are you going to go to, right? To you, to thee I come, we say. That leads me to my second point, confusion even with Jesus. Look with me in verse 26. So the father says, I believe, help my unbelief. And then Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene. He rebukes the impure spirit and says, you deaf and mute spirit, come out of him and never enter him again. 
spectacular scene, right? People are running to see what's going on, what's going to happen, and Jesus speaks these powerful words. Guess what? In verse 26, the spirit shrieks, convulsed him violently, and came out. I mean, if, you're, if you had been there, this would have been a spectacular scene, right? Because the boy was convulsing and all of this. Lots of commotion and chaos. And Jesus speaks the powerful words of life. And then the this, this spirit comes out. But then the second point is what? Confusion, even with Jesus. Notice with me in verse 26. So the, the spirit comes out, and then notice what it says. The boy looks so much like a corpse that many said, what? He is dead. He's dead. Now, I want to really seriously ask you to put yourself in that father's shoes. You brought your son, and so you had a low point, and that is your, it's a public embarrassment. You bring your son to this wonderful teacher, spectacular healer, and rather than getting healed, he is having this kind of convulsion, and you know, this is a publicly embarrassing thing. It's low point. But the high point is that the, the Jesus speaks these words, and the Spirit comes out. That is a high point, which is immediately going to plummet you to another low point, and that is people are saying, now he's dead. And I want you to really think about that. I want you, let's really zero in on that moment. We don't know how long it elapsed, but it did happen, right? They were saying that he's dead, that he was shrieking and convulsing, and then he looks like he's a corpse. And, and many concluded that this guy must be dead. Imagine yourself to have been that parent, or father or the mother. You would be confused. You'd be saying, what's going on? You are this great teacher, great healer, and I bring my son to you. Rather than having this, you know, fantastic kind of triumph happen, what I'm met with, what I'm confronted with is this unspeakable tragedy. My son died. At least until today, my son had these, you know, episodic kind of seizures or possessions that sometimes he would do that, but then 80% of the time he was okay, but now it's 100% of the time he's dead. I'm even not going to be able to see him. Confusion, even with Jesus. But what the father needs in this particular moment are these five words to live by. I believe, help my unbelief. Imagine your son, people are saying he's dead. And what, what can you say except to say, I believe that you are the one to do the thing that you promise that you will do. And I believe it, but still help my unbelief. You know, many assume that once you become a Christian, all your problems will go away. That's what I was told when I became a Christian in 1989. It's like, yeah, you became a Christian, all your problems will go away. I don't know about you. And some of you are smiling, saying that that's probably not true. You know, I grew up an atheist until I was 21. And when I became a Christian, my, my dad thought that was really not a good idea. It was a terrible idea, he thought. And then when I told him that I was going to go to theological school from having worked in New York in corporate finance, he thought that was a terrifying idea. And more problems arose. I mean, my problems didn't go away. It invited more problems. And yet at the same time, it also invited the one who will solve these problems one by one according to his perfect plan and according to his perfect pace, that is Jesus, the presence of Jesus. Yes, there are confusion even with Jesus, but Jesus was there as he is here in this context as well. That leads me to my third point, that is compassion of Jesus in verse 27. So are you with me so far? There is a challenge of Jesus. Jesus says, all things are possible for one who believes. And the Father says, I believe, help my unbelief. And then there is a confusion because rather than kind of having this boy completely kind of, you know, cast out of the demon and up and about and being happy, people are saying he's dead because he's now looking like a corpse. 
So we find in verse 27. Notice with me in verse 27. It says, and I love these two words, but Jesus. I love this word here, but. I love this phrase here, but Jesus. I love this sentence here when it says, but Jesus took him by the hand. Because when challenges of this world overwhelms me, I need to remember, but Jesus. Because when confusion of life circumstances cripple, cripple me and fill me with a brain fog, I need to remember, but Jesus. Humans might be saying, he's dead, she's out of here, and you're up to no good, but Jesus will take this child by the hand and lift him up. But Jesus, the compassion of Jesus. Notice what he does. He doesn't just say to the child or this teenage boy, hey, I know you're not dead, get up. He could have said that. I mean, he could have done a lot of things. He could have just spoken to the child and says, hey, I know you're not dead, so why don't you get up and let's get going. He doesn't do that. Instead, what he does is he takes him by the hand. And you might say, well, that's no big deal. No, I think it is a big deal, and here's why. See, there is a, and here we see the beauty of the incarnation and the message that God was trying to really uh, kind of communicate to us and embody for us. See, there is a thing called scandal about touching a dead man. Within first century kind of Jewish ritual and, and religious customs, especially for a religious leader or priest or rabbi, you don't touch a dead man. That's why, as you may remember parenthetically in the parable of the Good Samaritan, the, the Levite that came by and saw a man that looked like he was dead, he just walked to the other side because as a religious leader, you don't want to you know, kind of contaminate, contaminate yourself or make yourself impure by touching a corpse. And yet, but Jesus touches him and lifts him by the hand. Scandal of a touching a dead man. Willingness of Jesus to stoop down to our level. There is a, a fourth and fifth century uh, church father by the name of John Chrysostom who taught this beautiful idea of this divine condescension for, uh, for teaching us about the kingdom of God. He spoke about this particular passage and says, you know what? God could have done a lot. God could have sim Jesus could have simply said to the boy, but he doesn't. He touches him to show the depth and uh, the depth of the incarnation, depth of divine willingness to identify with our human frailty and fragility. All of his you know, activities, all of his actions signify something about his mission and his identity. Let me say that again. All of Jesus' actions signify something about his mission that is having been sent by the Father for the purpose of uh, redeeming the world unto himself. That, that is the mission and also his identity as both the redeemer as well as the revealer of the will of God. And you know, a very important thing here that I want to note here is this, that the divine compassion shown in Jesus Christ leads us to a progressive healing of ourselves, including our memories, including our memories. Because Miroslav Volf, a well-known Croatian theologian who teaches at Yale Divinity School, wrote this book, uh, Exclusion and Embrace. And he speaks about the, the war in the Balkans, and he says, you know what, one of the most important things that God does in our Christian journey is to heal us of our memories. I don't know about you, but sometimes the past memories may be kind of grabbing a hold of us in ways that it doesn't release us from the past. So one example would be a, there was a, a former a POW during the Vietnam War, and he had this kind of you know, harrowing experience of incarceration, 
and there was an event for the uh, Vietnam War veterans in, in Washington, D.C., and he was with some of his friends, and he said, you know what, I'll never forgive those, you know, bleeping, bleeping blimps, you know, in Vietnam who tortured me. And one of his friends said, one of his kind of comrades during the war said, you know what, it seems like you're still in prison. It seems like those guys still have you locked up inside your own heart. You see, one of the great things about coming to Jesus and allowing Jesus, this Jesus will touch you by the hand, is to allow the process of healing of our memories. My dad was a political prisoner in South Korea, so I didn't see my father from third through sixth grade. He died suddenly last December, and as I thought about my my relationship with my father, I realized, you know what, there are a lot of things that, that had not gone spoken I wish I could have told him so many things about how sorry I was and how much I loved him and all of these things. And I realized, you know what? I need to release them to the Lord because God needs to do that healing of my memory, of my father, of my past, and of our life together. Come to Jesus, right, with the confession, I believe, help my unbelief. He's willing to get his hands dirty, quite literally, by touching this boy, but also to live among us and to die for us. So that leads me to my fourth and the final point. So this compassion of Jesus is most beautifully shown in Hebrews chapter 4, 15 and 16, where it says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, yet without sin, he is able to sympathize because he has compassion toward us, and that compassion led to a concrete action of the incarnation of God in Jesus Christ. So lastly, courage. Courage from communities of Jesus. Look with me in verse 29. Here's a very intriguing text because now, you know, there's a real, I appreciate the sort of a, a a brevity of expression on the gospel writer's part because in verse 27, he takes him by the hand and lifted him to his feet and he stood up. If I had been the gospel writer, I would have said more about what happened to the boy and the father. There's nothing. In verse 28, it's just after Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we do it? Why couldn't we drive it out? I mean, that's a legitimate question, right? Because these were, you know, apprentices of Jesus. They've been traveling and learning stuff from Jesus. And then there was a spectacular failure on their part. Well, while their master was away, while their teacher was away, they brought this case study, and then they couldn't solve the case. So they asked him, Why couldn't we do it? Look with me in verse 29. Jesus' response is a very, very interesting one. He says, this kind can come out only by prayer. What does that mean? Okay, among other things, I want to highlight this thing. Courage from communities of faith. Courage, I say. Prayer. So in the West, in the sort of, you know, in, in the Western individualistic context that we have, we have made prayer to be a solitary individual practice of piety. Let me say that again. Many of us tend to think that prayer is something you do alone by yourself. No, it's not. Prayer is done best in concert. Concert of prayer. Prayer is done best in community. Prayer requires courage. Prayer requires courage vis-a-vis God. It requires courage before God because you're willing willing enough and vulnerable enough to say, God, I need help. I cannot make it on my own. It also requires courage in front of your community and in front of your peers because as Martin Luther said so beautifully that when we confess our sins to one another and we hear the words of absolution and we pray for each other, we really fulfill the law of Christ. Because in our willingness to be vulnerable, in our willingness to say, I ain't got it all together. I ain't got nothing figured out. I need you in my life. That courage from 
communities of Jesus. It's something that is really, really important. Courage to pray, courage to confess, I believe, help my unbelief. Courage to ask somebody, could you please pray for me? I would say, friends, that a community that doesn't pray is a community that has gone rogue. A community that believes in a theology of prayer and can say all the right things about prayer, but yet does not pray together and pray among families, pray among different families and different community groups and saying, you know, I need your prayer because I cannot do this alone. See, God created us with the image of God. That means the imago Dei means that as God has created within God's self, that God himself exists in Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, eternal community of persons. In the same way, God has created us to be interdependent upon one another in this community of Jesus. That courage that is given to us, courage to say, I don't have everything figured out. I don't have everything figured out, and yet I need you. And I pray, my friends, that as you're thinking about a new people and a new Memphis, I pray that one of the major engines that will get this, you know, work of missions at home and missions abroad going is that powerful engine of prayer. Powerful engine to having the courage to say, Lord, we don't know what we are doing, but we know who you are. We know what you can do, and we know what you have done. So we come to you, dear God. So let's wrap this up now then. I want to end with a prayer from St. Francis of Assisi, a prayer that is perhaps very well known to you as well. It is a prayer that talks about him saying, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, let me sow hope. Where there is darkness, let me sow light. Where there is sadness, let me sow joy. O divine master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Dearly beloved, as we submit ourselves, as we submit ourselves and surrender ourselves to the purposes of God, to have the courage to say, Lord, help, I believe, help my unbelief, that will be part of the way that God will continue God's beautiful work of restoration of divine image in this beautiful community called Independent Press. May the Lord continue to do that because his word is faithful, his word is infallible, and he will do it. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we thank you for your wonderful promises that were fulfilled in and through the person of Jesus and his work. We thank you for the promise that gates of hell will not prevail against this rock that I will build my church. That we thank you for the witness of IPC here in Memphis and with ups and downs and travails and, and troubles that they have gone through and delights and despairs that all communities go through and as the enemy is tirelessly at work, we thank you that you have continued to shine abroad your witness of the glad tidings of Jesus here at IPC. Continue to accomplish your work as you're looking forward to another year of faithful presence here in Memphis and beyond. And may all the brothers and sisters who have come from different parts of the world for this uh, missions week be much encouraged and edified so that we may serve you more delightfully wherever you would have us be. Thank you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.